Hello everyone, it's March 31st, 2020. So SpaceX has a new resupply concept for Lunar Gateway and it looks very Cygnus-y or ATV-ish. SpaceX also had a parachute test last week and that looked very not so great. So let's get a closer look, let's talk about it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 254 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So how are we doing on week three? Good. Excited for some space flight escapism. <laughs> excited to talk about something else? Yeah. yeah, me too. OneWeb has officially filed for bankruptcy. I think oh, we talked yeah. about that last week. Between them and Bigelow, there's been kind of a... I mean, it's a tough time for businesses in general. So we now have two companies that have filed for bankruptcy, uh, OneWeb and than Bigelow. I'm kind of surprised about Bigelow because they, I mean, what does this change for them? I think, I mean, I don't remember exactly what happened, but like as a company, they've kind of been operating slowly behind the scenes for a long time. Who, Bigelow? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that one stings a bit more, I think, because it's just... Well, well, Such a cool so I mean, habitat. The buzz in the industry is that Bigelow is a bad company to work for. They don't care about employees. They tend to do random layoffs and reassignments without, you know, too much logic behind it. And just, you know, generally, uh, I think, uh, Robert Bigelow is, he's a little bit of a, not somebody who should necessarily be running a whole company and he's, you know, a little bit tough to work with. So I, I don't think that them like, going, oops, pandemic, everybody gets laid off. It was too terribly surprising. Um, kind of seems like the scatterbrain kind of thing that the company would do. Um, and, and again, yeah. this is this is all just like hearsay. Like, don't not take a job with them just because of me. Like, do your own research. But um, I when I read the news, I wasn't particularly surprised. I guess it's not surprising that a company, and, and this is something that happens a lot, that a company that in this case was founded by a real estate guy, that maybe it's not going to do that well, although it has done better than expected. But Robert Bigelow is not, you know, he's not an engineer. And um, yeah. that's something that you hear a lot that, you know, like maybe you need to have somebody who's a little bit, a little bit more technically minded. And since he's not, things have gone slowly for, what, 20 years now. Mm. and or Or, you know, if, if you're a rich you know real estate mogul or whatever and you want to start a space company just hire a, a you know yeah. a Gwen Shotwell <laughs> or you know like somebody who really knows their stuff and let them run the company and this this is not mm -hmm. a dig at Elon because Elon is an engineer and he's really involved in a lot of their you know good and also crazy uh, engineering decisions <laughs> that you know yeah. more often than not wind up being really good ideas even though nobody's ever done that before but you know so I'm, that's not what i mean by that but like you know find find somebody who knows what they're doing and let them run the company and just mm -hmm. sit back and go ooh this is fun this is really cool good advice stands to yeah. reason yeah yeah <laughs> yeah exactly that's the thing is it stands to reason this is not like this is not like big shocking <laughs> advice this is just like come we're, on we're not splitting the atom here we're just saying yeah you know, right Hire a capable manager. All right. So before we exit the banter, the intro banter segment and move on to the actual news, uh, Emery in the chat's got a great quote. He says, uh, uh, Bigelow is the poster child for the saying, how to make a small fortune in space. Start with a large fortune. <laughs> yep. Start with a large one. <laughs> I appreciate that. Gateway, again, so I guess it's not off the table because SpaceX is doing some interesting things regarding Gateway and uh, 
So, okay, so where we stand now is that the Lunar Gateway is still a thing, but maybe just a little bit later on in the overall mission. Is that, does that sound mm-hmm. right? Okay. Because I'm trying to keep track of what's going on here. I thought that maybe, I mean, you know, the rumors were that maybe Lunar Gateway was being put on the back burner, and I guess it still is, uh, but it, it is still very much relevant because now we have a new Dragon spacecraft. That yeah, will be surfacing it. A lot of the reporting uh, has a lot of quotes from Doug Lavero, where he's kind of made it clear that because they've opted to move Gateway outside of the, uh, to make it non-critical for Artemis's just getting people there in 2024. So that means he's happy to keep it on like that different track where, yeah, you know, it's not something that could potentially spoil a 2024 landing, but something that we would ultimately want. So that's why it is proceeding forward, but kind of in parallel, I guess I would say. That kind of has me thinking, is this an example of kicking the can down the road or like, is it the opposite? And, you know, this is how you get things done because they still want to put people on the moon, right? And Mm -hmm. so you can just take this out of the equation, which should make things a little bit easier, but they're still keeping it. So is this like, you know, the jobs program aspect of NASA? I don't know. I guess that's a different discussion that we could have. But uh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I often, I tend to not have a good sense or feel for it, but it does sound like the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, okay, you're, like you said, back burner. Um, when it comes to very expensive, big NASA projects, taking a long time, putting it on the back burner, might, it might result in it end up getting canceled down the road. I would not be surprised. I don't think that's I'm not saying I think that's what's going to happen but I'm just saying that this seems like a kind of thing where it's been deprioritized and something that's deprioritized can ultimately get canceled but again yeah. I have a terrible sense of these things <laughs> yeah so so the big thing dominating the news uh this week appears to be uh uh, a big SpaceX award for um like we're talking about right related to gateway and so um this is about the Gateway Logistics Services Program, which is about getting cargo to gate uh, to lunar lunar gateway. Sorry, I keep wanting to say mm-hmm. lunar orbital platform, lunar gateway, and um, this would be a, a twelve to fifteen year program with uh, uh, indefinite delivery and indefinite quantity of uh, of goods getting sent up there um, to kind of support the kind of bigger uh, lunar mission that NASA has. Uh, I've seen uh, $7 billion floated around. I think that's the money that's kind of been set aside for this program. So uh, that's, of course, over, you know, a decade and a half or so. And um, there was a request for proposals last June. I missed this entirely. Uh, I don't know if either of you guys remember that request going out, but um, <laughs> the upshot was they were asking for a uh, 3,400 kilogram kilograms of pressurized cargo and 1,000 unpressurized uh, to make it to ultimately Gateway, which is going to be right in this weird, I shouldn't say weird, this elongated uh, <laughs> rectilinear, rectilineal haler, halo orbit. That's, yeah. that's a, a fun one to say. Yeah. And, uh, but the fun good news is that SpaceX wins the contract. And I think it looks like they've got a pretty awesome thing going for it. And so I'm kind of happy for them that they did. So um, they probably won't be alone, but this is, you know, this is it for now. They're the ones that have won the first kind of award for uh, this servicing program. And it guarantees two missions with uh, the possibility for more. And so, again, this is a pretty long time frame. So I can imagine more than uh, two missions out there from uh, SpaceX alone. And uh, the idea would be to get some uh, cargo out there as early as 2024, right? This this big year, which is <laughs> keeps appearing whenever anybody talks about Artemis. And um, in particular, uh, so SpaceX's proposal would be to uh, 
launch a uh, well what's called a, a modified cylindrical version of their dragon that they're calling dragon xl so uh it's pretty awesome scott manley has a youtube video on it uh casper stanley uh did a pretty cool uh not pretty cool. He just did a cool <laughs> rendering of it on Twitter. Oh, you think that's a a pun about Dragon no. Excel? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> well, it, it, we, that's oh. a we talk about. I like that. Oh, we, we talk yeah, about see the second line. <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah, we talk about paper spacecraft. This is a paper rocket for sure. Right. So we got what five tons of it's optimized for five tons of cargo. Uh, one uh, interesting thing is that. Um, uh, just like uh, Dragon, it's got the uh, pressurized and unpressurized, the pressurized section, and then the unpressurized trunk. But in this case, the unpressurized trunk lies at the front near the uh, docking port. It consists of uh, the uh, there's one official render, so I guess that's kind of uh, the fun thing. Uh, you want to look this up on the news because that render is kind of well. It'll it'll needs. be in the show notes for sure. Yeah, uh, it's got what looks like uh, four thrusters around the docking hatch, and then another four on the side of the uh, cylinder uh, at the. Uh, uh, fore end of it. In the official render, unless I'm seeing things at an angle, but I think I mean, Scott Manley had mentioned this as well, we're seeing three engines per thruster, at least on the side uh, right. thrusters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Three, three thrusters per block. Yeah. Three thrusters. Per yeah. Block. But it's not three separate engines, right? It's just one block. It's just one Draco engine, right? But it, with three. Well, it, I guess it has three yeah, sort of it, components. It, or, yeah. It, it's it's mm. likely to be three different combustion chambers. Right. Um, but I mean, you, you can also have three different nozzles attached to one thruster or one, uh, combustion chamber. But the way that Dragon works is it's, you know, totally separate engines. So I don't think that they're going to want to develop a whole new, <laughs> a whole new engine. Oh, sure, uh, sure. Or a whole new variant of Draco for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because these are probably the same ones that are on the current mm-hmm. Dragon spacecraft. Yeah. So as few changes as possible. But yeah, it is interesting that they have yeah three thruster quads instead of four. They're called I think they're called quads because they are on a quadrant of the spacecraft, not because they have four quadrants that they can fire in. Uh-huh. Um, but it still is kind of weird to to have three thruster quad. Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the old uh, first quarter and third quarter moons that always confuses people because right. you're like, but it's half lit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but no, like you said, I mean, right? I, I have to imagine that these are just, uh, yeah, recycling, not recycling, but just using the hardware that they've already developed mm-hmm. and has been yeah. successful, you know, and good. Safe assumption. And so the uh, this thing's pretty cool looking. Um, as for the uh, the mission, uh, right, this program itself, uh, the idea would be to deliver. Uh, the cargo is early as 2024, uh, like I mentioned earlier, um, and SpaceX would launch this Dragon XL on a Falcon Heavy from uh, Pad 39A. Uh, it'd be enclosed in fairings, unlike uh, their current uh, Dragon launches, and they're um, enclosed in a fairing. So a lot, a lot of this is speculation based off of one photo. It, did they actually say that it's going to be enclosed in a fairing? Because I would assume so, looking at the shape. But is that yeah? Is that something it all they actually blends mentioned? Together I think that was something that was reported. The only way that it couldn't be is if it were, you know, a much more aerodynamic shape. But I agree. That seems like a lot more work instead of just, you know, putting the whole thing in a fairing. That seems the cheaper, just, you know, the faster way to get this thing into orbit. I mean, that's that's a safer assumption than talking about what kind of thrusters it's going to have on board, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, here we go. Yep. Dan Hartman, NASA's Gateway Program Manager said that the Dragon XL will lift off inside a payload fairing on the Falcon Heavy launcher. 
Perfect. Especially since the service module section is actually facing forward or facing up, you would need to create a conical surface in order to, you know, Mm -hmm. properly. I mean, it just doesn't seem likely that that's something that they would do. And I don't know what you would do with those solar panels, but it just seems really logistically difficult. Yeah, I, I I wonder how much of this is just an interesting configuration that SpaceX came up with and how much of it would actually wind up. Because like, why would you fly this module upside down? That doesn't solve that many problems. It, it certainly doesn't cause any, but it seems weird to test all of your uh, all of your hardware for most of the thrust going, you know, positive Z. And now all of a sudden, you're gonna, you know, make sure that you're um, your hat or your uh, your docking port can handle negative Z. I mean, I'm sure it mm. can, but it just seems kind of a weird change with that's not really like a like a solution looking for a problem. I guess just because you would need to make the service module part more structurally sound, which might add weight, since the Dragon spacecraft is already uh, the heaviest thing. Yeah, as op- as opposed to the pressure vessel, which is happily gonna bear a lot of weight. That's a good. I gotta I gotta oh. go watch Scott Manley's video because I'm sure he talks about about flipping it upside down, right? He had said that it is because the weight is being put on the cargo hatch, you know, like the airlock. And so that is already very structurally sound. And so why not use that to bear the brunt of the weight? Sure. But, okay. That that sounds pretty reasonable to me. Sensible. Plus, like when you look at the service module, there's one shot. And of course, this is all just in a rendering. Who knows how accurate it is, but it's just a big hollowed out tube. And then there's, you know, a fuel tank in there, a couple other things. And there doesn't seem to be very rigid components holding that thing together. It's kind of like a big piece of, I don't know if it's corrugated, but, you know, a big cylinder with some solar panels on it. And that looks to be about it. It doesn't even have a top piece. <laughs> um, it's just exposed. Yeah, no no top to fall off, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if you were building this in Kerbal, at least I would have some extra struts uh, kind of holding the top end in place. Oh, you, ju- you just turned auto struts on and you're good. Yeah, so as far as speculation goes, Manly was doing some good... Uh, Kind of calculations, kind of estimating what kind of delta V would be required, and suggesting that perhaps uh, Falcon Heavy might require three barge landings for each side booster and then the core. That would be pretty badass, but I mean, <laughs> this is, of course, like we were saying before, all speculation. But you could see why you would do that, where you'd have to catch the two earlier on, and then the third one, uh, the core, downrange. Yeah, because he said that this is kind of like pushing the upper limits of what the Falcon Heavy is capable of, mm-hmm. or, you know, as far as getting this into Gateway. So probably you would need to land those out in the ocean. But yeah, we don't know for sure, unless there's some major upgrades to Falcon Heavy, which there probably won't be by that yeah, point. No, not not that much anyway. So the program uh, consists, right? We've got this launch, then we've got a six to 12 months stay at the station. So in the Scott Manley video, plus I also just checked to make sure because it seemed pretty outlandish. So you say six to 12 months stay at the station. That's kind of like what it's probably going to be because then under here, it says that, you know, it has to be capable of staying docked for three years, which apparently is the case, which really surprised me. So I don't know which to believe because in the request for proposals, and on an old Space News article written in uh, June of last year, it says that it must be able to remain docked to the gateway for up to three years and depart with at least as much cargo as it delivered for disposal. So Could that be uh, overhead? Like plan for a year, but make sure... Well, that's what I'm wondering. Well, that's what I was, that's, that was my assumption. I didn't know if there was something right. I was missing there. Yeah, because the, the 12 months is being reported a lot. So I'm assuming that this is just like, you know, in like an off-nominal situation up to three years. And plus, you don't want one year to be the upper limit there. I mean, you want to have some room. And this, is, this isn't this is Leo, so this is like, you know, 
a delay could be like, yeah, oh yeah, we're not going to be able to get, we won't be able to resolve whatever issue just cropped up for another like 18 months. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Right. Yeah. That kind of. Yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking. I mean, given how, how many delays seem baked into moon missions these days, or at least crew <laughs> yeah, <moon right>. missions. <laughs> and they're yeah. probably going to fly cargo out there before people. So. Yeah. And then, uh, like you were mentioning, right, that it would need to be able to, uh, take up its own or its, I guess, original load in uh, uh, waste to be disposed of. Um, so, yeah, the, the spacecraft needs to be capable of autonomous disposal as part of the uh, proposal, part of the project, I guess. At this point, there's no uh, return to Earth capability uh, that they're uh, looking for or building into the, uh, the spacecraft. Uh, but that could be something longer term, as you can imagine, right? Something like uh, lunar rock samples, uh, wanting to yeah. be able to scoop them up. Well, I mean, how, how cool would it be if you um, found a way to refuel Dragon XL? Because I'm sure it doesn't need an upper stage to to do its return burn. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing it doesn't need it. Um, but imagine if you were to be able to send this thing Oh, but it would still have to capture because it can't arrow capture. But I mean, imagine sending this thing home and uh, it can't, you know, it, it doesn't have a heat shield, so it can't re-enter. But imagine mm-hmm. docking it to ISS and having uh, astronauts there have access to all of this, you know, moon rock and then be able to fly uh, it down piece by piece from there. That would be so mm-hmm. cool. I mean, like, that's a treasure trove. I mean, I, I don't think that they'd be able to return it with, you know, the three metric tons uh, <laughs> pressurized all filled up. But, I mean, you could send some of it home, you know, like, that's a lot of rock. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I wonder now that you mentioned that, if that would be possible given the inclination of station, because I've heard it said that it's not at the right inclination for any kind of a lunar mission. Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's definitely, we're definitely talking like gravity, the movie gravity kind of level physics here, but it just, it seems like it'd be really cool. <laughs> I would just love that idea of something docking to station that didn't come from Earth. Yeah. Like, how cool yep, would that be? Exactly. Right. Like immediately prior, at least, I mean, ultimately yeah. did. But. Yep, exactly. <laughs> also, something that's pretty cool is that with this, right, the beauty of this, uh, lunar orbit is that you can reach all the different lunar uh, latitudes you want. And so sampling from different parts of the moon, you know, geologically, it'd be very interesting in addition to just getting those numbers up. So hopefully uh, the return to Earth capability will be kind of installed by the end of this year. You know what I mean? Like not only will there be a lunar gateway, but there will be one that is capable of bringing back lunar rocks. Yeah, so I got I got one thing to add before we uh, stop talking about the moon. NASA's Office of, of the Inspector General uh, this week announced that they are auditing NASA's acquisition strategy for uh, Artemis missions. And so I don't, I mean, this is like a legal thing, um, so I, I can't talk too much about it. I can't make, I can make some reasonable assumptions about engineering and sometimes be right when it comes to, legal stuff uh, uh what even more out of my depth but it sounds like oig might suspect some issues in the way that the procurement process is happening or maybe the the contract award process is going and so they are it, it sounds like since they're saying that they're going to audit the acquisition strategy it doesn't sound like they're going to be auditing uh their budget or budget overruns um it sounds like you know, maybe there might have been some favoritism or something suspected. I, you know, I don't think anybody mm. knows. 
But yeah, that's an interesting thing to talk about. Yeah, I feel like that might become a full-blown news item in the coming uh, weeks or months. So moving on to, I guess, some more SpaceX news. Crew Dragon uh, Mark III parachute tests. That did not go as planned. Uh, Well, it didn't go at all. And I haven't seen any footage of this, but from what I understand, they had an issue with a helicopter that is used to, to carry out these drop tests. There was some instability, and they had to drop the capsule at low altitude. So not good. Yeah, no, it's unfortunate, right? Crew Dragon getting ready for their upcoming launch, hopefully this summer or maybe in May. And and so they wanted to, you know, run some more of these parachute tests. And uh, it sounds like they had three more tests to go. Uh, one of them was successful. They had two more to go. Uh, as of uh, Hans Koenigman, Koenigsmann earlier this year was talking about that. And um, yeah. Like you said, they, they planned to drop a test article from a helicopter to test the chutes, but everything became unstable during the ascent, so the pilot made the decision to pull the emergency release, certainly the right call. People's safety is more important than the you know, test. But by pulling the emergency release early, this was before the parachute system was armed, so the test article was destroyed. And the test article has so far been undescribed, but I mean, it's a capsule. But I, I, hopefully just a, a boilerplate that they have others. And that's an important thing to point out that this is just a test article because I think I was under the impression at first that it was an actual mm. caps or that it was an actual Dragon spacecraft. But that's not the case. And uh, I don't know why it would be actually since you're just testing the parachutes. Mm-hmm. This is why you wouldn't want to put a very valuable, important exactly. piece of hardware on there. But yeah, I, I haven't seen any footage of that. I kind of would like to, because um, uh, just to know what kind of instability they're talking about yeah. to get an idea. Well, that stresses me out just thinking about that. Like, right. it's a scary thing. And Emery's pointing out that the uh, pilots doing these tests are heroic beyond description, which, I mean, as somebody who's a... Uh, uh, nervous flyer, <laughs> I would definitely uh, back up that <laughs> that uh, characterization of them. <laughs> Somebody who's a helicopter pilot who's doing something like this, for sure. Yeah, that sounds really hard. Uh, yeah, you have to be an expert. So if they make that drop, if that's their call, then I'm sure that's the right one because <laughs> mm. I don't think anyone could do a better job. And as you're pointing out, right, these these are this is uh, these are high altitude uh, or high elevation drops. So now was the drop of this. Dragon, though, from a high elevation or a low? Well, it didn't get up there, right? It, yeah, it was during ascent. Yeah. yeah. It didn't even get that high in the first place? Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't think we know the altitude, but it was during ascent. So it certainly wasn't from the from the okay. test at altitude. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't reported whether, you know, how far up it made it. But depending on what the nature of the instability was, whether it was just intrinsic to the setup, then that probably, I would guess, means it happened earlier in the ascent. Uh, rather than being due to like, I don't know, winds or some environmental condition, which could have, I imagine, happened at any point during the ascent. But mm-hmm. that hasn't been reported on, at least that I've seen. But yeah, that's that's kind of everything I had on that, really. We talked, we touched on it all. Which, I mean, which is a cool update because it's pretty vague uh, immediately after the incident, you know what I mean? And so to be able to get an explanation, yeah, that's that's pretty wild stuff. Just two short and sweets this week. What's our first one, Dennis? First up, NASA files a request for new engines. NASA has published a new request for proposals in search for a new engine for the Orion service module. The initial missions will use the Shuttle Era orbital maneuvering system, but a new engine will be used for subsequent missions. An important constraint in the request is that the engines must be compatible with the existing European-built service module interfaces and ground equipment. Since NASA anticipates using the Shuttle Era system for the first five Artemis missions, the new engines should not be 
be needed until the mid-2020s. I didn't know anything about that, so I thought they were just going to use the orbital maneuvering systems, or I didn't even know what they were using, actually, but I don't know why they're... I guess because it'll be cheaper to get newer hardware instead yeah, of using the old... We, we have a limited supply of ohms. Yeah, but couldn't you build more, I guess? Sure. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but they weren't... They were built to be reused. Like, what's the point of... Oh. Continuing to man- manufacture reusable engines. And they were also built like 70s, 80s. Designed in the 70s, built in the 80s. Or 70s, 80s, and 90s. So Astra suffers damage in its pre-launch test. Yeah, not good. Uh, so small launch vehicle startup Astra had been preparing its Rocket 3.0 for launch no earlier than March 24th. However, on the 23rd, it had been confirmed that the vehicle was damaged in a pre-launch test. There are a few details so far, but it is known that there was an emergency response and the launch area had been cordoned off. Astra has confirmed that it will be rescheduling for another launch attempt, but as yet has not given a date. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we got a really cool, I guess, elaboration regarding Artemis yeah, that exactly. we talked about last week. <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, this person, th- none of this is like uh, top secret information as you'll see as we're going through it, but the contributor asked us not to uh, mention their name, so we're not going to do that. But um, so this is all information about Artemis 1. So I talked about how I didn't know what the pre-translunar injection sequence looked like. So somebody with uh, somebody went and did some good uh, numbers for us. So let's see. So SLS launches uh, ICPS and Orion into a 22 nautical mile perigee by 975 nautical mile apogee orbit. So that's that's a key thing that I didn't have any clue about that that uh, SLS is putting the upper stage on such an elliptical orbit. So mm. when I was talking about oh well, you know, I expect them to do a couple of a couple of orbits, that doesn't take into account this this really uh elliptical orbit they're put into. Uh but indeed they they do a full uh a full lap. So uh at Apogee, ICPS does a perigee raise maneuver to get them up to 100 by 975 nautical mile orbit. Then at the first perigee pass, uh, they do the TLI. So that's, that's one lap around the Earth before burning for the moon. So, so in Kerbal Space Program, there's a nice little resonance that actually I believe applies to the Earth and the moon as well. Um, if you do your, uh, your TLI burn as the moon is, you know, quote unquote rising over the, the horizon, you're going to be put on it. That's almost perfect timing to, to get to the moon. And so if you are launching and immediately going into your TLI, which neither Apollo nor Orion are going to do, then you would want to launch just before the moon rises, right? But in this case, they're going to do that and then do an extra lap instead of launching and burning directly for TLI. So that's exactly what that sequence looks like. And then um, this person also had an interesting point about DRO, the distant retrograde orbit, which I think we've talked about in the past, but we didn't talk about in the last show, and it's a really uh, good topic. So when you're orbiting the moon, there are very few stable orbits just because the moon's gravitational field is so lumpy. And if you are high enough up to avoid that lumpiness, you're usually going to get 
uh, perturbed by tidal forces from the Earth. And so the distant retrograde orbit is one of the few orbits. It's kind of like there's a family of orbits that it's part of um, that is very, very stable. And this is actually more stable than the four low altitude orbits, right? There are four inclinations basically around the moon that you can safely orbit in um, that are that are stable for years and years, while the DRO is actually stable for like hundreds of years. Huh. Why is that though, that that particular orbit and I, why retrograde? Yeah. So I think I think the altitude gets you the stability from the lumpy gravitational yeah. field and the retrograde gets you stability over uh Earth's tidal forces. Um that's that's just me guessing though. I'm not a hundred percent sure why. So I did a quick look up and it's due to the interactions it has with the L1 and L2 Lagrangian points. Ah, there you go. Okay, so it's so it's similar to how um, the near rectilinear halo orbit is also basically a, a merger of a of a traditional orbit and an L2 halo orbit. So that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So uh, Orion is going to stay in its DRO for at least six days. And it, this is going to be the first time that we've really demonstrated a DRO. So that's going to be pretty cool. But they're they're actually going to um, stay there longer than strictly necessary because they want to be able to land during the daytime. You want to be able to launch and land during the day. You know, that's, that seems pretty reasonable, right? And so they're going to have to stay for 26 days instead of the six-day kind of standard mission. But they're going to have to take into account being able to land during the day. And so that's going to take, you know, half a month um, for everything to line back up. Because, you know, you're, you're going to, you need day, the day side of the Earth, because the day side of the Earth always faces the sun and the moon is going around and you're going to land on the far side of the Earth. So you need to wait for the uh, moon to be in the right on the right side so that you can uh, have the, the mm-hmm. sun face in the right direction. So pretty cool. Thank you for the specifications because it, it felt bad not being able to pin down exactly what was going to happen. So I, I appreciate the extra work. Nice mm-hmm. elaboration there. So uh, moving on to this week in spaceflight history, we got a couple winners. Uh, we have Chubby and the Greek. Boy, that sounds like a, a morning DJ team doesn't Chubby it? in the Greek. <laughs> it does. You're right. So yeah, we had an audio clue last week. And what that was in reference to was the birth of Gus Grissom on April 3rd, 1926. So that was a really clever clue because Gus Grissom had named, oh crap, you know, I don't even know now, his capsule Here, was uh, it the one that he uh, had delivered? Don't worry, I'll, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Don't worry. <laughs> Good, you do that. I didn't do the yeah. proper research. You did. I just yeah. only named it after because of his experience with the yeah. uh, Apollo which call, or Mercury program. So, uh, right. G- uh, Gus Grissom was born on April 3rd, 1926 in uh, Mitchell, Indiana. Um, and he uh, went to high school in Indiana and then went straight into the Army. And this is where his story kind of differs because a, a lot of these uh, early astronauts, we say, oh, yeah, they went to high school and then they went to college and they went to the army and went to the master's program and got all this education. Gus Grissom is a little different. Um, he went into the army and, uh, you know, during World War II and he wanted to be a pilot. And instead he wound up as a clerk because <laughs> he had a high school diploma and no flight experience. So after he got out of the army, I think he was only in for like a year. He then really was uh, motivated to go get his pilot's license. So he went to Purdue and got a BS in mechanical engineering. And then he turned around and re-enlisted, but this time in the U.S. Air Force. And he did indeed uh, receive his pilot's license. And he actually flew 100 combat missions during the Korean War, which is 
insane. <laughs> wow. Uh, and he even, he even volunteered for another 25 mission de uh, deployment, I guess. But, uh, he proved himself to be a very, very good pilot. In fact, there was one mission that was mentioned specifically in Wikipedia, um, where he, um, was recognized for flying a, a bomber escort mission. And apparently he really showed his stuff at that point. Um, so he, uh, he wanted to do another, uh, 25 missions, um, but instead was posted to, uh, Bryan Air Force Base as a flight instructor. And then he was selected for NASA Astronaut Group One. I, I think we've all watched uh, the right stuff. Uh, so, like, I think uh, Group One, at least for me, is you know near and dear. But he he almost didn't make the astronaut selection because he has uh, pretty bad allergies, apparently, or at least did. Um, but he successfully argued the case that there was no ragweed pollen in space, and so it wouldn't be that big of a deal. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I think that's, uh, I think that's a, a correct, uh, a good argument to make. Interestingly enough, he was the shortest astronaut in Group One. He was five foot seven, and so he contributed um, in some pretty major ways to the space program. Um, notably, he helped design the Gemini capsule, like the the internals of the capsule, and he built it to his own specifications, which was pretty small. And in fact, he actually designed it so small that I think like three or four of the Gemini astronauts couldn't fit in the capsule. And so they had to go back and, and rearrange things to make it a bit more friendly for, uh, for larger statured people. While we're talking about his contributions uh, to engineering, he also is the person who developed the multi-axis uh, translation hand control used on Gemini and Apollo. So that's the two-stick system where you've got a joystick in one hand and then uh, a T-shaped handle in the other. Um, sort of the one of the first uh, twin-stick control, you know, translation controls. I mean, obviously, you know, helicopters have always used two hand controls, but this is kind of almost arcade game feeling, right? <laughs> then Grissom flew on Mercury Redstone 4. This was the second crewed flight of Mercury. Um, his spacecraft was called uh, Liberty Bell 7. So like David was alluding to earlier, um, the hatch, after landing, the hatch blew early. They were supposed to keep it closed until the rescue crew got there. Um, but since it opened early and the seas were relatively rough, um, his capsule actually started filling with water and started uh, to sink. So he, you know, scrambles out of the spacecraft and then his suit started filling with water because one of his air inlets was, was open. And I can't imagine anything more terrifying than being out in rough enough seas to sink a capsule that's designed to float mm -hmm. and then having your suit start filling with, uh, with water it just sounds claustrophobic. But in any event, he, you know, obviously was successfully, uh, recovered. The capsule ended up sinking. Um, actually it almost took a helicopter down with it, I believe, uh, when they tried to pull it out of the water and they ended up having to ditch it kind of like, uh, the aforementioned, uh, crew dragon, uh, test article. So, uh, there was a big hullabaloo around what caused this hatch to malfunction. Now, Grissom admitted uh, that he got ahead in the plane and removed the safety pin from the um, from the ejection or the uh, the hatch handle early. If that pin would have been in place, maybe this wouldn't have happened. But uh, the initial instinct was that he panicked and he pushed the button to open the door. And uh, I really appreciate 
Wally Shira's uh, guts because he actually, when he flew on Mercury, uh, Mercury Atlas 8, he made a point of keeping the door closed until he was recovered. And then he blew the door once he was back on the aircraft carrier. And when he got out, he demonstrated that he had a big old bruise on his hand. And mm-hmm. the reason is because this button was, uh, but they say button, but I believe it's actually a lever. No, I guess it's a lever on the outside of the door, so a button on the inside of the door. Anyway, so you have to slam your hand down really hard on this button to get it to pop open. I think it's like over five pounds worth of force. Um, and so if you if you pop the emergency hatch, you're going to bruise your hand. And Grissom had no bruise on his hand. And so I really appreciate his buddy. Like, it just, it, it's such an early NASA jock test pilot astronaut kind of thing to do. It's like, no, leave my friend alone. This is what happens. Later on, um, Gunter Vent, who I think, I think pretty much everybody's going to know who that is, ended up discussing how he thinks that the cover for the exterior handle for the door um, likely came off either uh, during reentry or in space. And um, once they once the capsule landed, either metal shrinking as it cooled down uh, caused the lever to uh, to be actuated, or perhaps uh, one of the parachute lines got tangled around the handle uh, and pulled the lever from the outside. Ultimately, we're never going to know. We actually did recover the capsule, um, and there wasn't any evidence that can tell us one way or the other. The next mission that Grissom flew on was Gemini 3. He replaced Alan Shepard and Tom Stafford. And he flew with John Young. This made him the first NASA astronaut to fly in space twice. Uh, the clue uh, was a clip from uh, the unsinkable Molly Brown, which was a Broadway show. So the Broadway show was about Margaret Brown, one of the few survivors of the Titanic. Gus <laughs> named uh, the Gemini <laughs> 3 capsule Molly Brown because he couldn't be sunk either, right? It's, <laughs> I, I think that's really fun. However, NASA didn't like it. And they actually asked him to change the name. And so, he go, so his backup suggestion is, well, we could call it the Titanic. Uh, and they said, okay, you know, you can call it Molly Brown. Uh, but from then on, they didn't allow astronauts to name spacecrafts until we got up into the Apollo missions. I believe it was Apollo 8 was the first one that actually got names. And that was because we really found it handy to name spacecraft when you have two of them flying in a mission and you can't refer to them by their mission number because they're part of the same mission and i guess you wouldn't want to just call them one and two you know like yeah you can, i mean you could say mm-hmm. you know csm and lm but it's just it doesn't work it's not as good yeah yeah and then uh of course th- this is really hard for me to talk about but grissom was assigned to one final mission and of course that was as204 aka apollo one but he uh he didn't make it to uh, to a third flight in space um, because uh, of the Apollo 1 pad fire. And space disasters are, are really tough for me to talk about. Um, so what I wanted to do was to read a little bit of an excerpt from a fantastic speech uh, given by Gene Krantz after the fire. Um, there'll be a link in the show notes to the entire speech. Um, and I'm just going to read a couple of bits. And I first heard this speech in the podcast, 13 Minutes to the Moon, which is really, really fantastic. And you should listen to it. Um, if you listen to uh, the first season and unsubscribed, be aware that there's now a second season that's running that's talking about Apollo 13 uh, and kind of giving it the same treatment. So I, I 
highly, highly, highly recommend uh, listening to it. Honestly, if you have to choose between listening to this show and listening to that show, go listen to that show. <laughs> so good. <laughs> um, but they had an actor read this speech and I, I really love uh, both the content of the speech, but also the attitude in which the sort of the context um, and, and the, the way that, that the response was given to this, this horrible incident. So here we go. Spaceflight will never tolerate carelessness, incapacity, and neglect. Somewhere, somehow, we screwed it up. It could have been in design, build, or test. Wherever it was, we should have caught it. We were too gung-ho about the schedule, and we locked out all of the problems we saw each day in our work. Every element of the program was in trouble, and so were we. Nothing we did had any shelf life. Not one of us stood up and said, damn it, stop. I don't know what Thompson's committee will find as the cause, but I know what I find. We are the cause. We are not ready. We did not do our job. And then this part, I, I think at some point I need to make something that says tough and competent because this, this next part is so great. From this day forward, flight control will be known by two words, tough and competent. Tough means we are forever accountable for what we do or what we fail to do. We will never again compromise our responsibilities. Every time we walk into mission control, we will know what we stand for. Competent means we will never take anything for granted. We will never be found short in our knowledge and in our skills. Mission control will be perfect. When you leave this meeting today, you will go to your office, and the first thing you will do there is write tough and competent on your blackboards. It will never be erased. Each day you enter the room, these words will remind you of the price paid by Gussum, White, and Chaffee. These words are the price of admission to the ranks of mission control. Whew. So good. Yeah. Uh, just just a really fantastic speech. Um, and again, that All wasn't right. the whole speech. So go go read the whole thing because it's really good. And you picked uh, good excerpts from it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. So that's this week in spaceflight history. I have a non-audio clue for next week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the clue is next week in 1962... Sail and wheel. Sail and wheel. Yeah, so sail as in a sailing ship, sail and wheel as in a wheel. All right. No idea. But uh, 1962, nothing happened in spaceflight in 62, so I can't. <laughs> yeah, nothing happened then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so 1962, sail and wheel. Don't know what that means, but if you think you know, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week, SF, and good luck. Yeah, good luck, everybody. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We have no launches this week. The only thing we really have is uh, a SpaceX Cargo Dragon on docking, and that's happening on April 6th, and coverage of that starts at 9.30, and that's Eastern time, and then the actual release is scheduled for 9.52. So that's the only thing happening, really, and then hopefully the next week we will have a launch, at least one. <laughs> so yeah. things are still launching. All right. Well, that's your upcoming Spaceflight event. So let's de-orbit the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter and Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.